Welcome to the NLP Highlights Podcast, where we talk about interesting work in natural language processing. The hosts are Matt Gardner, Walid Amar, and Pradeep Dasigi. All right, today our guest is Marco Ribeiro, who is a senior researcher at Microsoft. Marco, welcome to NLP Highlights. Thank you. Today, we wanted to talk about something you've published a few papers on recently, and this is uh, behavioral testing of NLP models. I guess a lot of people have been thinking these days about how our evaluations don't always seem like they reflect the actual capabilities of the systems that we build. And you've had a pretty interesting take on this. Do you want to tell us about how you think about this problem? Sure. I mean, there are a lot of papers on different ways of analyzing and evaluating models in terms of different things like robustness, consistency, fairness, and whatnot. And I've written some of those papers myself. One thing is pretty clear, I think, to me and I think to most people, and that is that accuracy on some cross-validation data, while important, is not enough. Like you can measure accuracy all day long and your system can still behave in really weird ways and really silly ways. So I've kind of had a string of papers culminating in one that I think is more principal, but we've started with adversarial examples. Then we move to logical consistency. Like if you have a QA system and you ask it, are there two people in the picture? Yes. And then you ask how many people are in the picture? It should say two. So it should be consistent with itself. That was another one. And then now I have a paper on this year's ACL that is behavioral testing is actually in the title. So it's the one that's most on this topic where we're trying to apply principles from software engineering to testing these NLP models. So the thing is, I'm not saying in any of these papers that we should replace accuracy and stop using accuracy. Accuracy is good. Cross-validation is good. It's just not enough to figure out if these models are behaving appropriately. And so we recently had a talk with Ellie Pavlik, Pavlik, who talked about probing and behavioral testing in the context of probing things. And I, I think your use of behavioral testing here is related. I guess people from cognitive science and linguistics think about how I can test behaviorally from like a linguistic standpoint. You're coming at this from a software engineering standpoint. It's kind of interesting how these two terms and even like the, the practice here converges. Would you say this is like behavioral testing as you're using it here is really pretty similar to how you might, if you want to think about probes and like if, if a model captures some particular thing, it's basically the same thing that you're talking about here. Is that right? I think it's similar, but I think it's a little different from probing. Um, so we're using behavioral testing in the software engineering sense, and not a lot of people know what that means, but it's just another name for black box testing. It's saying instead of looking at the implementation I'm going to treat the model as a black box and just test the behavior. Given inputs, what behavior do I expect on the output? Given perturbations on inputs, what behavior do I expect? I, I think where these converge is that if I'm testing a specific behavior, like say, do I understand prepositional phrase attachment, for instance, in a, a parsing model, I might probe whether a model understands this with a particular behavioral test that's designed to tease apart whether the model understands this thing. And if in the software engineering perspective, I presumably have something that I'm trying to probe, like some behavior that I want to know whether the model does something, like I need to be able to write down what, what behavior I'm looking for. And in that sense, these two things align. They do align quite a bit. A lot of the probing literature that I've seen, instead of testing the behavior directly, what you do is you take some representation given by BERT or whatever, and then you train another model on top. And that is where I think a big difference lies, because you're not testing 
the behavior of the model itself. You're testing what can be done on top of what the model has learned. Yeah, that yeah, that's fair. Probing has a lot of baggage. There are a lot of a lot of things that could mean, and some people like when we were talking with Ellie about this, so, um, we did make a distinction between like fine tuning something to try to understand what's in the representation and just doing like behavioral probes of of a single model, and so th- that's probably the, the source of this disconnect. But anyway, um, you want to tell us more about what you do with these behavioral tests? Mm-hmm. So first, what we're suggesting is that people should write a bunch of tests, just like in software engineering. Think unit tests. Like if you have a sentiment analysis model, you should make sure that your model works on stuff like this is a good book, this is not a good book, or something like that. And right now, what we do is we take this big data sets, like you take SST, Stanford Tree Bank. There's, I think it's tens of thousands of examples where you have very complex behavior. You have negation there, but it's entangled in a bunch of other stuff. And we're saying, let's do the opposite of that as well. Like, let's have the entangled stuff, and let's also test individual things, like individual components. And we have a a guide of what people should test and how they should test. So in terms of what to test, we have 10. In software engineering, you just test individual functions, right? Or you test individual components, maybe, objects or classes and whatnot. In LP, we don't have that. Typically, you don't train a model that has all of these separate components. So you have one model for everything, or you have a couple of models for basically everything. So our translation of this principle of testing one thing at a time to NLP was testing linguistic capabilities, is what we're calling them. So things from the classical NLP pipeline, like does my model understand part of speech, different parts of speech? Can it handle adjectives and nouns and whatnot? Does it understand named entities? Does it understand negation and so on? We have 10 of them. But the key point is that we have to test them as they apply to the task. So we're not testing negation in the abstract. We're testing negation for sentiment analysis. And that's going to be different than negation for question answering, even though there's going to be obviously some overlap. So this is what to test. Like we're testing these individual capabilities how and how they manifest in the task. In terms of how to test, we're proposing different test types. We have three. I'm talking too much. You can interrupt me at any time. But So we have three test types. One, the simplest one is what we call a minimum functionality test. It's just a unit test. So if you're testing negation, the simplest thing for sentiment analysis, again, the simplest thing you could do is to just have very short examples. I don't like this. This is not good, and so on. So testing, what's the minimum that the model should be able to do for us to say it can kind of handle negation? That's basically it. And in this, we're creating tests from scratch. Like you're creating very focused, small data sets, as it were. For the other two test types, we're relying on perturbation. So you take an existing data set, and then you perturb it in some way. And then one test is you expect predictions not to change. We call this an invariance test. And it's just what it sounds like. You do a perturbation, and you say no prediction should change. So to continue the sentiment analysis example, if you have, I like this book, and you change it to, I like this movie, or I like... This TV show, sentiment should not change. And you can think of various invariances like that for specific capabilities. And then lastly, the last kind of test we have is what we call a directional expectation test. It's the same thing. You apply perturbation, but instead of expecting prediction not to change, you expect something else. So one example we had in the paper was take some example and add I hate you to the end and then expect sentiment to not go up, expect it to be monotonically decreasing. So that's a directional expectation test. So that's 
a mouthful of things, but the point is like we, we kind of construct this matrix where the rows are capabilities and the columns are test types. And it's very easy. You just follow the matrix one step at a time in order to test a model. So this is great. There are a lot of interesting things to ask about. I guess to start, the first test type that you talked about there was a, a minimal functional test, I believe, the MFT. Minimum functionality test. Minimum functionality test. And so here you're basically saying, I want a very small input that, that should very clearly result in a particular output. And what I wonder is, you're essentially like changing your test distribution. And why is it the case that we don't have these examples in our test distributions? And why is the one that you're suggesting better than what we have? Does this question make sense? It does make sense. You'd expect that we would have them, but the way that we collect data sets is such that we do not have them. So if you're collecting a machine comprehension test, it would make sense to start very simple and say, can we do machine comprehension on single sentences? And then can we move to paragraphs and then whole articles or something? But the way we do it right now is we say, okay, let me define a procedure. I'm going to take Wikipedia paragraphs. And then let me define the way I'm going to get the questions. And then, okay, Turkers are going to get them. So we end up with this data set that have a particular distribution that typically is not exactly what we care about. It's still useful, but it's not what we care about. So if we had a data set with all of those examples, maybe we wouldn't need to create all of these minimum functionality tests. But even then, it's useful to separate things out. So if you had a data set with all of these simple examples and a ton of complicated examples, it would still be useful to slice it out and say, my model can handle simple negation. It cannot handle negation that's slightly more complicated. And it just fails completely when the negation is within this kind of context that is X, Y, or Z. Does that make sense? It does. And I guess from a machine learning perspective, when you change distributions this way, you lose all kinds of guarantees about generalization and such. And it's just interesting to think about like the whole premise that actually this data set that we collected, it's not what we are interested that The accuracy metrics on this particular data set aren't actually what we care about. And so there fundamentally is a mismatch between our train and our our what we really want for our test distribution. You're right. This does break all of the theory of machine learning, all of the premises we have. But if you think about it, that, that is almost always the case in reality. Like you almost never care about that particular data set, the way you gather the data. It's almost never the right thing. So if you generalize to that distribution, that's nice. You can prove all sorts of things about that. But do we actually care about generalizing to that or to the real world? I would argue that in general, we care about generalizing to the real world. Or I guess just to push on this one last little bit, if if you're like actually deploying something, something in the real world, then you should get samples from the real world usage that you expect and label that as your training set instead of some random academic thing that doesn't actually match what you want. And then I can keep all of my machine learning guarantees. You should, but even do you? You get that data set and then you start using your system and your system interacts with the world and that changes the kind of examples that you start seeing. So you, your system is working great and then you get new clients and now you have all of these new domains that you didn't have before and your distribution just shifted. Now you're doing sentiment analysis on law review rather than Twitter um, that you weren't doing before. Yeah, that's a great point. And, and another easy response to my my devil's advocate point is that 
language is the space of possible inputs in language is just so large that you're you're really never going to see all of the stuff you want to see in any realistic training set. And so if you want to be able to handle all kinds of arbitrary stuff that you might see at test time, you're going to have to do something like what you're doing here with these behavioral tests. Right. Uh, given that point, can you even make an argument that, for example, if your uh, model fails on uh, some examples which include negation, uh, given that uh, you're not testing all possible contexts with uh, negation, can you even make a claim that your model is failing on negation? Yeah, it's sometimes even with a test, it's hard to pinpoint, is it negation itself or is it some other thing that is correlated with the way that I generated this test? So we have to be very careful about naming things precisely. But I would argue that if my sentiment analysis model fails on, this is not a good book, this is not a great movie, it doesn't matter if we call it negation or not, we should go and fix that behavior. It should work on that kind of stuff. What I would be more careful with is saying that it works. Like if it passes all of the tests, I would not say, oh, okay, my model can handle negation now. And it's the same with software engineering. If you write a bunch of unit tests, you can pass all of them, but you know that there could still be a bunch of bugs hiding in there. It just gives you a little more confidence. At least it works in the sanity checks. If it doesn't work even in the sanity checks, then you should go and fix it. I guess this also brings up an interesting way in which our NLP models are not at all like software in that we can have unit tests for software because the execution of the functions that we're testing in software are in fact independent. Unless you have some like complex, crazy global state where you, you've actually implemented something poorly. And maybe that's the analogy here. Our models have like some, the, the execution of each say negation or linguistic capability that you might care about are not actually independent. And so you can have some crazy interactions such that I could pass some suite of unit tests for negation, but if I introduce some correlate that the model tries to, like some, some confounding factor that the model actually doesn't disentangle the way you might think it should, then all of a sudden the model fails on negation in the presence of this extra thing. Right, right. And that's why I'd be very careful with saying it works because it passed my unit tests. But I'd be comfortable saying it fails because it failed my unit tests. Or even writing a unit test like what you're just describing. Let me add some little confounder here and seeing if the model can handle it. Something that should not change the behavior. Yeah, and in, this is kind of related to your other two kinds of tests, which I think it'd be good to talk a little bit more about. So you have these perturbation tests where, I guess, can you give just a simple example of the kind of change that you would make again? Sure. So... One change that you would you would make, I actually wrote one paper where it was just about one kind of perturbation, is to do paraphrases and say the model should be robust to paraphrases. And you can define paraphrase however you like. If you're thinking sentiment analysis for, I don't know, movie reviews, you can create a very targeted list of words that are interchangeable and just say, does it work for these words? Like if I change these, whatever reviews I get, even unlabeled data, does the prediction remain the same? So that's one kind of perturbation um, that people have explored a lot. One that I haven't seen as much is adding, so I, I had an example of adding very negative phrases to the end of a review. I hate this. Or you can think of the most traditional ones like adding typos, um, doing like testing robustness to contractions. One that we used a lot in the paper was changing people or location names for NER. So if the example says John is good, replace that with Matthew is good and expect it to be the same. 
Yeah, that this is interesting. So for the sentiment analysis where you're adding a negative sentiment sentence at the end, do you only do that for negative sentiment examples or do you do that also for positive sentiment examples? I'm doing for all of them. And I am not, notice that I'm not expecting the prediction to become negative. I'm only expecting it to not become more positive. Right. So this is the directional change, not the invariance test. And the, I, yeah, that's a really interesting idea. I like that a lot. That there are some things that should at least not make my, that ha should have a known directional effect on my output. That's a really sensible thing to try to test. Yes. You also have some, the invariance. So like I, I should make a change where my model doesn't, I make a change to my input and my model should not have any corresponding change to its output because these should be, at least according to the function that I'm trying to learn, these two inputs should be equivalent. And those are great. We can talk, I know you have some really great examples of this later, which we can talk about when we get to the actual experiments that you ran. One thing that I, I wonder though, is what's the extent of the cases where you can actually do this? You had a paper, not the one, not your most recent one, but you had one at ACL last year, I believe, on consistency. You mentioned this at the beginning of the episode. For SQUAD, for instance, the Stanford Question Answering Dataset, you can do some subject-object rotation, basically, and take something that was the answer, make it an object, and find a new answer in a in a way that I can predict in the paragraph. So I can I get there are classes of changes that I can make deterministically and know what the answer is going to be. My question is like what how far can you push this? At some level, you're going to end that you're you're gonna try to make perturbations where if I could actually know what what the corresponding output should be, I'd have already solved the task. So how do we think about pushing the this kind of test farther? I think the it's a valid concern. Like, do we need to basically solve the test to come up with the perturbations? And sometimes it's hard to come up with perturbations. However, you don't need to know how the model should behave everywhere. You just need to come up with these counterfactual functions that should be true. So for example, if I say, look, changing people's names should not change sentiment. I don't need to solve sentiment analysis for that. I just need to know this property of one particular kind of perturbation. And I think that's a much more manageable approach than trying to exhaustively list everything that the model should do. Again, we're, we're talking about testing here. We're not talking about expert systems where we're trying to encode everything that the model should be doing under every perturbation. We're just talking about, hey, this basic test, we should be able to do this. Sometimes it is the case that you have to write a paper on it, like the consistency one you just mentioned. I actually did write a paper on that. So it's not something that I expect some software engineering testing their sentiment analysis model to come up with in an afternoon, that kind of perturbation. But many others are of that kind, where you can just come up with something very quickly and easily. So you're specifically recommending this kind of thing for simple behaviors that I might want to test and more complex things probably need something else. Is that fair? No, I'm saying we should do both. Realistically, if you're testing your own model, you probably it's easier to start with the simple ones. But what would be ideal is if we as an NLP community could come up with a lot of these, put them in a repository somewhere so that people could go and test them on their own models. So yeah, maybe it's hard, you have to write a paper, but after you write a paper, can you put it somewhere so that other people can test if their models are consistent or whatever else perturbation you come up with? Just to make this particular discussion concrete, if we're running what we've been talking about sentiment analysis a lot, um, 
people can get creative when writing reviews of stuff and use sarcasm to express negative sentiment or metaphor, like this is as bad as, or this makes me feel like some situation X where X is obviously negative, but maybe not to a machine. And can you imagine behavioral tests like these templated or automated kinds of tests that, that can capture this kind of phenomena? Sure. It's easy to think of template and minimum functionality tests. It's a little harder to think of how you turn an example into sarcasm. Um, so think of pertur- thinking of perturbations is a little harder. But you can easily come up with a list of, let's say, you say something like, oh, this X is like getting water when you're in a desert. Like you can create a list of those and test your model on that. Sarcasm is the same thing. You can come up with a few sarcasm templates and test that. That kind of behavior, though, is way more complex than the kind of things that we had in the paper. And I think that if your model is not able to figure out this is not a good movie, maybe it's a little early to have it try to figure out sarcasm and metaphor and so on. But again, it's the same thing. If you have a list of very smart people testing models, you would expect that after some time you'd have a suite of tests that, like for segment analysis, we've been doing this for how many years? 20 years or something. There's NLP research on segment analysis. There should be a list of things or of data sets that we can go and test. Does the model understand sarcasm? Can it pick up on metaphor and so on? Yeah, that's a really great point. I hadn't thought of it quite in that way before, but we in NLP have basically been very much influenced by machine learning and taken all of our common practices from machine learning and that our goal is I have some training distribution. I want to learn some function that generalizes to an in, in an IID test distribution. And so we basically like that, that's our hammer and that's what we do for every single problem. But really probably a better way to think about this is to slowly build up just a suite of tests that are independent of any training set. Who, who really cares how you, how you trained your, your model to get this thing? We just want to know, can I build a model, any model, that can pass this test set. Mm-hmm. Yeah, think of a customer nowadays. Like think if you're an airline or if you're whatever, a bank and you wanna use machine learning and you're not gonna develop it in-house, you're gonna hire some company like Microsoft or Google or whatever, or you're gonna do some partnership with some university and say, hey, can you guys help me build this machine learning model? Do you care about how people do it? No, you just care that it works in your, your application and you have some tests that hey, it needs to work for this, it needs to work for that, it needs to work for this thing. Like, it does not matter, I think, how we get there. And I think, I don't know how people do it nowadays. Like, if you're a customer, like if you're an airline and you want to get sentiment analysis, do you go see how well people do on Stanford's tree bank um, to figure out if that's going to help you with your tweet brand awareness tool? I don't know. I don't know how people do it. It seems very painful. Yeah, I, I would assume that they would collect some in-house data and label in-house data. And then for whatever model that they're testing, they would compute accuracy on their random sample of in-house data that was labeled it by themselves. But again, as we've talked about previously, that can miss a lot of really easy cases. And because the space of things they might want is so large, it's really hard to make that comprehensive. Yep. So I think now's a great time to talk about what you actually did with these tests. So your paper outlines how to build these tests, but also instantiates it uh, with some particular examples. Do you want to tell us about what you did? Mm -hmm. So we picked examples of 
models and stuff where we thought that people would think these are solved. So we tested, we picked Quora question pair from the, which is from the glue um, benchmark. It's the task where Bert and Robert and so on are supposed to be beating humans by the largest margin. We picked squad because we also think that we're beating humans these days on squad. And we picked sentiment analysis. And so we, we tested some research models. We tested BERT. We tested Roberta. Um, we also tested a few other ones like XLNet and, or Elmo, but they didn't make it to the paper because they were strictly worse than BERT or Roberta. And we also threw in some commercial models for sentiment analysis. And the reason we did this was when I was starting on this project and I pitched it to a few people and I said, look, I'm finding these bugs. Like, would you be concerned? And this is people at Microsoft. They're like, no, like this would never make it into production. Like there's no way that the product team would let this kind of stuff pass by whatever metrics they have. And I said, okay, I should add some commercial systems and find some bugs so that I'll convince people as well. So we threw in some models that Microsoft, Google, and Amazon sell as a service that people can test. So we ourselves, so we, we had a few things. So we wrote a bunch of tests for all of these, tested all of these models. And we also had two cases where it was not us writing the test. So to show that the process is useful, not only for the authors of the paper, but for other people. So after testing the Microsoft sentiment analysis model, I, I went to the team that trains that model and validates it and said, hey, do you guys want to try this nifty new process and tool that I have? Let's see if you can find some bugs in your tool. So that was one. And then the other one was that I did, we did a user study with people at UW. So people with no experience on Quora question pair, we asked them to come up with tests for Quora question pair using our process or not using our process and see, and we saw whether they could find a bunch of bugs. So yeah, basically we tested a bunch of models, had other people test a bunch of models and we found a bunch of bugs. That's it in a nutshell. Yeah, and I thought a lot of the stuff that you showed in the paper was really interesting. Can we dig into some details? I guess, I guess what did you think was the most surprising failure of a commercial system? So it was very surprising to me that very simple sanity checks on commercial systems failed. Like... This food is not great. If you're selling a sentiment analysis model, it should get this food is not great correct, right? It should know that that is negative. And you have, like, for this particular one, Google had a failure rate of, like, 54%. We can talk about what that failure rate means in a second. But for a lot of examples that we tried, this did not work. Like, simple, very simple negation. that This isn't a good customer service. So it was very surprising that it would fail stuff like that. Yeah, you also had some really interesting examples about changing names, like uh, country names. What was it, Britain to Turkey or something like this? And so we, for the perturbation test for sentiment analysis, I actually took a Twitter data set. All commercial systems say, this is a use case for what we're selling, Twitter, brand awareness, and so on. So we took some Twitter data. And what we did was we just changed location names, country names to other country names or U.S. city names to other U.S. city names. You have a tweet that says, I want you guys to fly to Cuba. And then I change that to, I want you guys to fly to Canada and expected predictions to be the same. Or if it said, agents were super bad, but I really like John and change that to, I really like Luke. So we're changing people's names, maintaining the male or female distinction and we're changing locations and seeing how often do predictions change. And we even put a margin on that. So if you have an example in the boundary and it changes from 55% positive to 45 we're not considering that a failure. You have to change with some margin for us to consider it a failure. And so in, in this one, for example, the, all the commercial systems 
kind of failed the location one. It depends on what you consider a failure. So 7% of Microsoft predictions changed, 21% of Google predictions, and 15% of Amazon predictions changed if you change location names. You would think that someone would have found that and fixed it, right? But apparently not. Yeah, it's interesting to think about why that might happen. I can pretty easily imagine how if you have some contextualized representation and sentiment is encoded somewhere in the representation for each country name, for instance, that that could bleed into the sentiment classifier's predictions. It's harder to think of how that might happen with non-contextual representations. But I I suppose even like pre-trained word embeddings might have some sentiment dimension that encodes because of word usage in whatever corpus it was pre-trained on could encode this kind of sentiment. Right. So we didn't have access to the commercial ones. I could have gotten access to Microsoft's, I guess, but we did play around with this with Bert and Roberta. And it is the case that there's some very clear, like Bert hates turkey, for example. If you put turkey in, sentiment always goes down. And I think it likes Brazil. So you can imagine, like, if you have a corpus of news articles and you, you see, like, what's going to be more positive or more negative? Is it going to be Afghanistan or Hawaii? So you can imagine that models would pick up on this stuff. But interestingly, it also has something with names. So certain names, you could imagine Hitler being negative, but John, Mary, Luke, those have a particularly slant. And it may be just randomness, but it is the case that this is happening. You can imagine, even if you're training on bag of words, if your data set, it's going to be sparse. How, how often are you going to see Cuba mentioned? So maybe if you see it mentioned a few times, your model is not regularized enough. It picks up some spurious correlation that is in your data set. Oh, Cuba appeared three times as negative. Therefore, Cuba is negative. So these uh, tests that you got when you asked uh, people who are deploying these commercial systems or people who are uh, grad students at uh, a university, were they experts on how the models worked or were these non-experts? So for the sentiment analysis one, these are the people who are developing the system that Microsoft is selling. So I would call them experts. They're experts on this particular model. That's their job. For the core question pair, it was NLP grad students. So in a sense, there are experts, but only one participant had prior experience with this particular task or this particular data set, TQP. So in that sense, non-experts. They are NLP people. They know what a part of speech is. They know what a model is and so on. But uh, more generally speaking, do, do you think uh, uh, tests, tests like these can only be written by experts who know enough about the tasks and how models work? I don't think so. It definitely is a little harder. Like if you, in the matrix that we're proposing, like one of the roles is semantic role labeling. So if you're not an NLP person, you have to explain what that is. But I did explain this to my wife, who is not an NLP person, said, hey, can you come up with some tests? Like, just here's some examples, like change active to passive or stuff like that. And all that's needed in this case is knowledge of the expected behavior. So if you know what should happen for sentiment analysis, you can write tests. Writing perturbation tests, you need to know how to write programs, I guess. So you've mentioned failure rates in this discussion a few times. And I assume you get the failure rate just by uh, instantiating a bunch of these tests and then calculating how often the model fails the test. But one thing that we may not have explained quite well enough in this conversation is that some of these tests are essentially templates. You write down a template like item is sentiment bearing word. 
And then I uh, can instantiate that with a list of items and a, a list of sen- like positive sentiment words, like book is great or whatever. Like it'll hopefully be a little bit more grammatical than that. But then essentially it seems like the failure rate is determined by how many items I have in my instantiation, right? I say I have two templates and one of them has a thousand more instantiations than the other. It's not really clear to me how to interpret the failure rate percentages. Right. And it's actually worse than that. It also depends on how you define the test. So let's say this is a test that I had for squad. It says, so you have the context. It says person one is a profession. Person two is another profession. So John is a writer and Mary is a doctor. And then I ask the question, who is not a writer? And the model should say Mary. One way of defining this test is saying, who is not a writer? Who is not a doctor? And then counting those as two different examples. Another way is to say, look, the model only passes the test if it gets them both right. So given this template, it has to know who is not profession one and who is not profession two. Otherwise, they didn't really understand. And if you define it like that, you're going to get a failure rate that's higher because now the, the model has to really grasp it to pass the test. So the failure rate depends on how you fill in those templates. So the example you had, this is a sentiment thing. If I had good, great, excellent, that's going to be give me a failure rate. If I have a list of 100 sentiment-laden words, that's going to give me a different failure rate. And it depends on which words I have. So maybe a model is really good on very common ones and not very good on distinct ones. So all of this is to say it is hard to interpret the failure rate. It depends on how the test was created and on what the expectation is. Roughly speaking, I think the percentage doesn't matter as much as so much as is it high enough to be troubling? So in the template example I just gave for squad, if we require the model to get them all correct, the failure rate is 100%. So for this particular instantiation, no matter what I put in there, BERT was never able to get all of them correct. Now, I don't care if it's 100%, 85%, 95%. I'll be concerned with all of those. I would not be very concerned with 5% or 7%. Um, so anyway, we have to communicate very, very clearly what is it that this number means, and it depends on the test. For the perturbation test, sometimes it's easier. Like the test that I just described, I changed a location to another location. It still depends on what list of countries do I have in there. Am I trying every country in the world or just the most populous countries? I actually did try only the highest population countries for this particular test. But the failure rate does change. Like if you start adding Trinidad and Tobago, that changes than if you have Russia and the U.S. And I guess especially because you're thinking about this in terms of sanity checks, simple tests, and not perhaps the very hard things that you might care about. Just as in unit tests with software engineering, if you fail a unit test, it's broken. You don't merge the commit. And so presumably all of the stuff that you're writing here is simple enough that you you really want like 100% passing in all of these things. I wouldn't say 100%. Yeah, close. Because language is complicated, right? Like maybe your model... Like if you're doing like, I like this movie. Okay, it should work on that. But if you start adding like, I like this, whatever, some very rare word um, that is a noun, maybe you're okay if it fails sometimes on that kind of stuff. You're not okay if it fails 50% of the time for whatever word you put in there. But for 1% of words, maybe I'm comfortable. Maybe even 10%. It depends on the application, I guess. But yeah, this is it's very subjective. What's acceptable and what's not acceptable. What I think is very clear is that 100% on stuff like this is not acceptable. Okay, so we've talked a lot about some sentiment analysis and a little bit about reading comprehension style stuff. 
do you think this paradigm works for more structured, complex outputs, like, for instance, dependency parsing? I think it, it should work for anything in NLP where you can specify behaviors, so basically anything. So if you have a parser, I'm not a parsing expert, but you may want to know, like, if you have a parse that says, this is a verb phrase, this is a noun phrase, does this parse change if I change John to Luke? It should not, right? So you can still test even the same tests that we're applying here. Or you can think of other perturbations, like if you give me a noun phrase followed by a verb phrase, there's specific changes that I should be able to make to the noun phrase that should not change the parse, or to the verb phrase, or that should change the parse. Like if I remove the verb, it should not be a verb phrase anymore. I imagine that most parsers would, would pass that particular test. But the point is, if you have a set of expected behaviors, you should be able to write them down. And even if it's harder to write perturbations, sanity checks should abound for every one of these, right? It specifically sanity checks testing specific things like names and negation and whatnot. If your system deals with language, it should deal with these capabilities in language. It should be able to handle names and negation and co-reference and whatnot. Yeah, I guess I can I can understand how you might write a minimum functionality test and how you might write an invariant perturbation test where these things should not make my model change its output. I have a harder time thinking about the directionality kinds of tests or tests where I can predict what the output should, like if my output should change, what should it change to without just like writing it out, writing that out as a minimum functionality test where I specify the whole output and not in a templated way. Sometimes you don't have to write what the expected output should be, but you can write a property of the output. So if you're thinking translation, for example, if you add a bunch of stuff to the end of the source sentence, the translation should not become significantly shorter. So this is an example of the kind of directional expectation test you could write, um, where you're testing a property of the output rather than what the output itself should be. Okay, yeah, that makes more sense. Okay, uh, this has been interesting. I think my last question for you is, how should we think about what kinds of things to test? In your paper, you talk about sentiment analysis and reading comprehension. I would say one of these is much broader in scope than the other, that I could have a reading comprehension problem that's essentially targeted at like asking questions all about the sentiment of a particular piece of text. And so like reading comprehension has essentially arbitrary scope. So you could imagine something similar for natural language inference. People talk about this a lot and they make a lot of different kinds of challenge tests or other kinds of behavioral probing things for natural language inference. But again, there, the scope is basically arbitrary because I, just, I can just put two sentences and have it test whatever I want, including, say, sentiment analysis. So how should I think about, if I'm trying to build a model, what kinds of tests I should write? That's a great point that you're making there. Um, and it's obviously very, it's much easier to answer the question if you have an application in mind. So if you're trying to build something using NLP, you kind of know what the goal is rather than if you're trying to solve a problem, like if you're a researcher trying to solve reading comprehension, like that's very broad. But if you're trying to do like those boxes on Google or Bing where you ask who is the president of the US and it tells you what it is, then the scope is clearer and it's easier to write tests. I actually think it would be great if we as a community had a pretty good sentiment checklist that we produced over the years and that you could just plug in and say, hey, I have a machine comprehension model. Can it handle sentiment? So that you're not having to build everything from scratch every time. 
And we're trying to get there. I think this paper is one step in that direction. And we, we did make it open source. And I tried very hard to make it easy to share stuff so that people try it out. But to answer the question, like I think in the very least, we should start by testing the most basic stuff. And this is where the matrix abstraction that I was talking about really helps. If you're thinking machine comprehension, it's very hard to come up. What are the most basic behaviors for machine comprehension? That's very broad. But if you say, hmm, what about named entities? Then it's a little more scope and you can think about what kinds of examples you'd come up with to test that. Even within that, you can go deeper and deeper, but it's a first step. And as I was saying before, I think we should test at a level that our current systems are close to being able to handle. So there's no point in testing if my model understands sarcasm if it cannot handle this is a good movie yet. And there's no point in testing if my machine comprehension system can handle sentiment analysis as a subtask if it cannot even figure out who the agents and objects are. So I think we should start with what's, what's likely to be possible right now. And if we can't do level one, let's not test level three. Yeah, that's great. I completely agree with your framing of this and like how we should, as a community, build up these tests. I'm really glad to see work like yours that pushes people in this direction. So thanks. Thanks, I appreciate it. I have uh, one one other gentle question here. Um, so I guess this is uh, related to one of the points that uh, uh, Matt uh, made earlier. How do we in general deal with the potential disconnect between what the user of a system wants and uh, what the person building the system thinks is important. For example, uh, negation is kind of fundamental for sentiment analysis. But uh, say if you're talking about negation in the scope of uh, parsing, as a system builder, as a researcher, you might think that it's very important. But uh, if the system does not handle negation properly, it's possible the user may not even realize it. How do we deal with such a potential disconnect? Ah, that's a great question. I'm glad you brought it up. So my goal with this paper was not to come up with something that only researchers could do. So I think that it should be the case that the end user should be able to write his or her own tests rather than relying on whoever is building the model to also provide the testing. So I think it's the case that different people are going to have different priorities, maybe even within sentiment analysis. Maybe sometimes you don't care as much about negation for whatever reason, like if you're doing some application that there's not going to be a lot of negation. Maybe you don't care. If you're doing movie reviews, maybe you care a lot about sarcasm because people try to be witty and then you really care about that. So it should the process of testing should be one that's flexible enough that whoever is testing or using the system should come up with their own tests. And also whoever is developing the system should come up with their own tests. So you should have testing at every step of the way. So I think unless we decentralize evaluation, this problem is never going to work. Like, There's always going to be a disconnect between people building the model and people using it. If you want models that are flexible to be used everywhere in different situations and whatnot, you cannot have everything be tailor-made if you want stuff to be reusable. And if you want stuff to be reusable, people have to be able to evaluate on their own. So I guess it may sound like a cop-out, but I think that we should build systems like this where everyone in the pipeline is applying some form of testing for their own application. Great. This has been a really fun discussion. Thanks for coming on the program. Thanks. Really appreciate it.